This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you under the yellow tape. Hey everyone, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. In the last episode, we talked about um, we talked about genealogy, and I gave you a case study where it was used. And we talked at the very end, saying we're going to talk a little bit about geofence warrants and some electronics and how it's playing a pivotal role in some criminal investigations around not only the country but even around the world. And um, I thought what we would do is we would use this horrific case out of Moscow, Idaho, and the homicide of four young college students as a case study to talk about some of that electronic and a little bit of DNA evidence and whatnot, because you can't really talk about it without diving into both. Today is the 8th of January. The other day they released the affidavit for the arrest warrant for Brian Koberger, and it's a good time to talk about this. We're probably going to do a, a follow-up on this as well, but right now it's a good time to talk about it because you have the only, this is the first time any information has really been let out. And it's interesting to me because we have had a lot of the media that have been frustrated, to say the least, some of them pulling their hair out because they weren't getting any information. And they're trying to write a story. I get it. Look, their business is to write stories, give the news, give updates. But law enforcement was keeping everything pretty close to the vest here in this uh in this particular case. And it's kind of interesting. You, you, let's start right there. Why? Why are they doing that? Could be a number of reasons. One, and you hope this is the main one, is to maintain the integrity of the investigation. Two is media really hasn't been all that friendly to law enforcement in the past several years, taking shots at them every shot, every chance, every chance they get. So maybe they just said, you know, we don't really need your help. And um, they, they weren't really giving anything up to the media on this case. But with this release of the affidavit, now which is a public document, um, we're getting a little bit of insight as to what went on. So Brian Koberger was placed under arrest and charged with four counts of first-degree murder, including in addition to a, a burglary charge going into this home. And people all over, all over the world are tuning into this case and saying, you know, what happened? Why, what's going on? What are some of the details? Well, the affidavit is really good. The affidavit is really well prepared. It's um, it it gives a lot of information, but I think what we all have to understand is an affidavit for an arrest warrant. What it is 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 making application to the court, some of what you know, and convincing the court, giving them enough 
information to believe what you believe that we have found the individual responsible for this crime. This is not the complete investigation report. And that's something that folks uh, have to realize because they read this and they go, well, I didn't hear about this and they didn't talk about this or that, or what about this? And what about that? That's coming. That's called the investigation report. That's going to happen. And if this case goes to trial, you're going to hear a lot more. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's go back. We'll do a quick little recap of what we're talking about here. And, uh, and we'll get into how they did this and what they've done so far, what they've released. So in November, I believe it was 13th, four young college students were killed in a house in Moscow, Idaho. It was an off-campus house. We have uh, the murders of Madison M Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, Zanner Knodel, and Ethan Chapin. These are the victims. These were young, young people. They were away at college, man. They're, they're, they're living their life. They're just starting, really, to live the life of an adult. Uh, somebody comes into their home and, and snatches them, snatches the life out of all of them. And we're all going to want to know why and how this was all, you know, what, what, what precipitated this? What, what was the reason this, this alleged young man did this? A young man by the name of Brian Koberger. Brian Koberger is a graduate student at the university, uh, Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. He has been charged. Now, you know, we got to give the old disclaimer, right? Everybody is presumed innocent until proven guilty. But he has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder in this case. Let's talk a little bit about how they got him. In the last episode, we did some, talked quite a bit about DNA and genealogy and, and, and things like that. And it comes into play here as well. Now, one of the things I want to address right off the top is, is a lot of media was saying, you know, maybe they're hiding you know, law enforcement is hiding information from us because of the missteps and their mistakes. And, you know, Moscow, Idaho is not a very big police department and they're not really geared up to do this. And, and these are serious, not allegations, but I mean, if that's the case, that's a problem. It turns out that doesn't seem to be the case at all here. It just says that they wanted to keep things quiet and work now. And under the yellow tape, one of the things we do is we try to give you the perspective of the investigator. So what I want you to understand as we go through this is, how much is being done by them in a very short period of time? It was, I believe, seven weeks, they said, before there was an arrest. All right. And to the world, to the media, that's eternity. If you don't have a story that day, there's another story tomorrow about something else and people move on. So they, you know, from a media standpoint, they want to get everything. They want to get it and they want to get it up and written and vetted and out before they move on or before the public moves on. So there is there is an obvious frustration there. But I assure you that in the seven weeks, this is not one detective sitting at an old metal desk doing all of this by his lonesome. This was a rather large, substantial team of investigators from different agencies, multiple agencies that worked together. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot express to you enough how important that is because that doesn't always work, especially when the feds are involved. They'll come in and, you know, they, oftentimes they want to sweep in and tell us we can do this and we can do that. You know, the feds don't really investigate murders, right? Everybody's like, call the FBI. It's rare that they are the sole responsible agency for investigating homicides. It's usually police departments of varying sizes or sheriff's departments or whoever that are tasked with this as the primary investigative agency. But the Bureau does bring some pretty spectacular things to the table at times, and uh, they did here. And I'm going to I'm going to give them their credit, but you have multiple agencies and, th and that's something that uh, they should be very proud of that everybody pulled together. I'm sure there was some fighting behind the scenes and some arguing and, 
uh, some finger pointing and name calling and whatnot because it, it always happens, but that's okay. That's uh, at the end of the day, as long as the job gets done. How they got turned on to Mr. Koberger and how they tracked him down is really something that is impressive. And it's, um, I was just recently interviewed in by a, uh, a, a news network. And one of the things I told them, I said, this is, this is a new technology, a combination of new state-of-the-art sophisticated technology and old-fashioned police work working together. And when you have that, it, it's a very powerful tool because the technology is spectacular now. They had some witnesses. They had some video canvassing done immediately after. They got, uh, they hit the ground running and they started from the inside out. They started looking at, in the house. They had two survivors. There was two surviving people in that house that were not attacked by this gentleman. Um, they started doing video canvases of the neighborhood, any surveillance, any ring doorbells, any commercial uh, security cameras and things like that. And one of the things that they, they noticed was a white vehicle. And this white vehicle turn, would turn out later to be critical. But once they started to hone in on who it may be, things started to pick up for them. In the house, the murder itself, you have a multi-floor home. I believe it's three floors. And you have victims on, uh, I believe it was the second and third floor. And it's interesting, the couple of things from the uh, affidavit that I found notable. As they went through uh, the affiant, uh, Brett Payne, he's uh, an officer there with Moscow PD. They're all in beds, except for Kernodal. Uh, Zana Kernodal was on the floor. And that's interesting because she's also one you're going to find out that may have been awake um, as he arrived. And I'll explain that here in a minute. But we have multiple bedrooms, multiple floors of the house. So we have, a, we have an individual moving freely about a home. It's in the middle of the night. It's around four in the morning, a little past four in the morning. So they're, most of them are asleep or getting ready to sleep. You know, they're college kids, so they're up and partying probably. And um, <clears throat> he, he makes entry into the house and makes his way around that house. The, the detective gives a pretty good explanation of what he sees as he goes in. And he even makes comment in the arrest affidavit that it, it appears to be Injuries from an edged weapon, meaning a knife or some sort of stabbing or cutting implement. And the medical examiner in their autopsy said they were caused by sharp force injuries. So there's in total, there's three females and one male victim. In the house, there is a sheath, which holds normally a knife. There is no knife. There's no weapon there. But this sheath was left behind. And it was from an old K-Bar, uh, U.S. Marine Corps K-Bar kind of knife. You can buy them in Army Navy stores. They're kind of a knockoff of the old Marine knife. It has the uh, USMC Eagle Globe and Anchor insignia on the leather. There, there's a million of them out there. But this sheath was left behind. And in the affidavit, they describe how the uh, Idaho State Lab located a single source male DNA. Now, as you read through that, or most people read it, oh, they, they see DNA. They say, oh, they found DNA. But they didn't just find DNA. First of all, they found it on the button snap of the knife. So it's somebody that's manipulating, manipulating the sheath, maybe opening and closing the, the snapped lock on the blade, and they've been in control of it. But the most important thing to me is it's a single source. It's not a mixture. There's nobody else handling this thing that, that we can tell from DNA evidence. It's one person, and it's a male. So it's a single source male DNA profile. That's important. And they didn't release that until the affidavit came out. They knew that there was a knife and they, you had heard incidents of about a K-bar, but there was nothing really more 
about that. And there was a substantial amount of interviews uh, done both on canvassing the neighborhood and the two individuals who were in the house that were not killed. This was, uh, this, this sheath was left and it was found next to one of the bodies. The, now these girls and this guy, they had been out the night before on the 12th and out and um, probably out having a good time. Um, they were seen on, on surveillance videos at a, at a, at a club. Uh, and then they were at a, a food truck called the Grub Truck down in the main part of town. You know, they live streamed their videos from their food truck, so they were seen there. So there's a, a substantial amount of video information that has been collected on just at this point. And it's really important because it shows them and shows them who they're with and who's around them. And they're able to look at things like that. There was two individuals, DM initials and BF. These are the surviving individuals in the house. And they both made statements during interviews um, that said the occupants of the row of the home on King Road, this is where the murder happened at King Road. The occupants of the King Road residence, everybody was home by 2 a.m. So it had been 2 a.m. on the 13th and either asleep or at least in their rooms by around 4 a.m. Now, you get into the electronic component of it. They were able to go into uh, the victim named Kernodal, her phone, and they were able to determine that she received a food delivery from DoorDash at 4 a.m. Your immediate thought would be, oh, who's the DoorDash guy? But they, they identified the DoorDash guy, and he was interviewed. So it wasn't our suspect. So at 4 a.m., she's receiving a food delivery. Um, at 4.12 a.m., still on her phone, she's on TikTok. That is pretty interesting when you start to look at the time of the whole thing here because 4 a.m., they're saying everybody's in the house, everybody's, you know, kind of bedded down for the night. 4 a.m., she's receiving DoorDash, and at 4.12, she's still, she's still on her phone playing around with TikTok. But DM says so she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. That's interesting. That's now... The phone is showing one thing, a DoorDash delivery. The other one is awoken at 4 a.m. Maybe she's awoken by, awakened by the DoorDash guy. I don't know. But she sounded like somebody was playing with her dog. One of the other victims, Goncalves, was playing with her dog in the upstairs bedroom on the third floor. She said she heard who, the, who she thought was Goncalves saying something to the effect of someone's here. Now, you got to remember DM, she's probably asleep. Who knows? Maybe they're not drinking or partying or whatever. She's, she may not be all that with it at that moment, but she's hearing things. Again, this is a college house with a number of different people, and by all accounts, it was pretty much a party place. So maybe hearing noises and people bumping around in the middle of the night is not all that unusual. A short time later, she said she heard what she thought is the same girl saying something to the effect of, there's someone here. Now, a review of the records from a forensic download of Carnival's phone showed she could also have been her as her phone indicated she was using TikTok at 412. Now, DM, the witness, stated she looked out her bedroom and didn't say anything. She opened her door a second time and she heard what she thought was crying coming from Carnival's room. And she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Well, it's, that's a little spooky, especially when you think of what went on afterwards or what was discovered afterwards. At 4.17 a.m., a security camera located at an adjacent home, just in the immediate northwest, picked up a distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud and a dog barking. This girl DM stated now that she opened the door for the third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure she describes clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. 
She's the, she described the figure as about five foot ten or taller, definitely a male, not very muscular, but athletically built, and he had bushy eyebrows. That's pretty descriptive, actually. She says the male walked right past her as she stood in a frozen, shocked phase. He walked towards the back sliding glass door, and DM went back and locked herself in her bedroom. There's going to be a lot of questions about why didn't she dial 911 right then and there? Uh, why didn't she do anything? Why didn't she go down the hall? Whatever it may be. You know what? Thankfully, she didn't go down the hall because she wasn't going to stop the guy. And he might have killed her as well. But why afterwards? Something she's going to have to explain. I don't really know the answer to that. She says she did not recognize the male. But then again, this is kind of a house with a lot of people in and out. So who knows what the thought process there really is. But with all this going on, the investigators have kind of been able to determine that they believe this, this homicide happened somewhere between 4 a.m. and 4.25. You got to figure a DoorDash guy's there at 4. There's a record of it at 4. She's on TikTok at 4.12, and they're saying at 4.25, everybody's dead. Maybe he was already in the house. Who knows? Um, they did find a shoe print in the house, and the shoe print they were able to process and get what looks like a suitable pattern, treadwear pattern on the bottom of the of the shoe that they explained may come back to a certain type of shoe. And the interesting thing about it is where they found it is kind of consistent with this uh, DM, this, this witness, um, the statement of DM. So things are starting to a little bit come into play and we're still inside the house. The video canvases played a huge part here. You know, people have to understand there's video cameras everywhere now. Everybody has a phone that has video capabilities on it, right? We see everything. People on the street see something happen. They want a video. They all want their 15 minutes of fame and they want a video of everything. But between ring doorbells and uh, Blink and all the other manufacturers that are out there, there literally is cameras all over these neighborhoods. And the cameras are all pointed in different directions. And you may not get everything on one camera, but when you start to combine all of the potential cameras in an area, you may get a pretty good picture of certain things. Now, you might ask, did this young man who's under arrest, Koberger, did he, did he notice whether there was cameras there? Did he do um, any recon? Well, he, it's going to turn, turn out later that he did, which I'll talk about. But So the police do this video canvas, and they start to pull some things together. And this white sedan, which they, in the affidavit, call Suspect Vehicle 1, was observed traveling westbound on the 700 block of Indian Hills. And they start to give locations in the area where this vehicle has been seen. And they're all time-stamped. So this vehicle, and at this point it's just a white vehicle, but they're, they're following where this vehicle is in and out and whatnot. They were able to go to different locations and get different pieces of video. And with it, they're at time their time frame is approximately 326. He's in that area. He's westbound on one at 328. He's on another. Uh, multiple videos obtained from the King Road neighborhood where this actually happened showed multiple sightings of this suspect vehicle one starting at 329, one half hour prior to when they think it happened and ending at 420. So the vehicles has been seen between 330 and almost 430, 420. They show him makes initial three passes by the King Road residence, and then leave via another road. The officer talks about, based on his experience in the area, this is why it was very good that he was the affiant. 
because he can add that local knowledge of the road. Like, look, at four o'clock in the morning, this neighborhood doesn't have traffic, okay? Four in the morning, even most college kids are bedding down. They're done. It's significant that this car is there. It's significant that it's been there three times uh, going back and forth. And the fourth time at 4.04, it can be seen driving eastbound on King Road, doing a, uh, turning around in front of uh, 500 Queen Road and then driving back. So he's going back and forth. At 4.20, a video picks him up leaving the area of King Road, the King Road residence at what is described as a high rate of speed. He's taken off. They give the they give the, the, the roadways that he's heading back, and he end, ends up going out towards a road that leads over to Pullman. So this is on the border of the western border of Idaho, the eastern edge of Washington State. And Pullman is where University of Washington or Washington State is. And where these these other young people are the victims is by the University of Idaho. So they're not far from each other. So there he's this this officer's doing a good job explaining how it's going back towards Washington which will come into play later when they finally identify who he is. These are both small college towns, and this road going back and forth is commonly traveled, but not at 4 in the morning. It's not, you know, getting your peak traffic at 4 4 a.m. The FBI, one of the great things they were able to provide is they have a uh, database of vehicles. And what they can do is take some video footage and basically scale it, look at uh, visual identifiers on the car, meaning manufacturer's identifiers or individual markings, and they were able to come up with the um, belief that this was a, a Hyundai Elantra, a Hyundai Elantra. Not sure of the year. Originally, they thought it was a little earlier, 2011, 2013. Um, but upon further review, they said it could also be up to 2016. So now they're looking for a white Hyundai Elantra and anybody in possession of one of those in the area. And this is that good old-fashioned police work. They start going around to the different schools, the different businesses in the area, and looking for any surveillance uh, video. So they went over to Washington State. The car was heading towards Pullman, where Washington State is, so they went to the PD over there. The, the uh, campus was able to give a video that indicated at approximately 2.44 a.m. on the 13th, a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of the Elantra, was observed by one of their university's uh, surveillance cameras traveling northbound. At 2.53, it was seen again. Some Another white one was seen. Again, these videos, the same forensic examiner, examiner said these are also, also a two, 2014 to 2016 Hyundai Elantra. So these cars moving around, and with all this video out there, they're able to uh, actually track the movements of this car, not even knowing it, who it, not even knowing who it is yet. But at approximately 525, a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of, the, of suspect vehicle one, was observed on five different cameras in Pullman, Washington, and on the Washington State campus cameras. The first camera that recorded the white sedan was located um, on Johnson Road in Pullman. And they, they give some further descriptors of roads and where he's moving around. At 527, two minutes later, it was observed traveling on a Another road on the campus. Moscow PD asked the other law enforcement agencies, you know, hey, look, be on the lookout for this white Hyundai Elantra. We're looking for it and we're trying to get ownership. We're trying to get this as a possible vehicle involved. And a Washington State police officer queried in their system this white Elantra's. And he located a 2015 white Hyundai Elantra on the, on the university records that had a Pennsylvania license plate. And it was registered with a young man named Brian 
Koberger, and he lived on Valley Road in an apartment in Pullman, Washington. So now they have a name. Don't know if it's him yet, but they have a name. You have a white Elantra owned by this guy with a Pennsylvania plate, and he lives in an apartment. You know, his apartment is on the other end of that road that they said they was coming back towards Pullman from, from the Moscow area. If it's in fact the same car, on a lot of these other videos, they never really gave a description of a plate. So they probably couldn't get it. The resolution probably wasn't all that good. <clears throat> so they went over and ran this, this car again now. Now that, again, he queried it through a computer. So it's probably whenever Koberger came out there to go to school, he had to get a parking pass or whatever it may have been on this car. And his car, he says, look, it's a, it's a white Hyundai Elantra and it's a Pennsylvania tag, blah, blah, blah. When they went out and looked at it again, then now they went over, uh, ran the car, and it turned to Koberger. Now it has a Washington license plate, and he has a Washington driver's license. So he had recently re-registered his vehicle. I guess his other vehicle registration was going to expire, and he re-registered it now in Washington. It indicated that he was a white male, about six foot high, 185 pounds. The picture that they pulled up from their DMV, their motor vehicle, showed him, and he had what could be easily described as bushy eyebrows. And it was consistent with the physical description given by the witness in the house. Still doesn't mean it's him. They started to now go through any possible police contacts of his and back through what's called CAD or RMS. CAD is your computer-aided dispatch and your records management systems of things and stops and interactions. And they find out that he had been stopped uh, a number of different times. One by a sheriff's deputy. And on all of these body cam. They had uh, dash cams on the cars and they also had body cams. And the in all, back in August of 22, he was stopped in Moscow by this sheriff's deputy, Corporal Duke, and he was driving this Hyundai Elantra with the Pennsylvania plate on it. So that's why they knew these were one in the same. He gave a phone number. I guess the deputy at that point asked him, uh, he provided a phone number and he gave a cell phone number. So now we have an individual we have a vehicle. We have two potential registrations. So anything that we find along the way that we can match, we got them, right? They have them. Now we have a cell phone number. And this is where things get a little interesting. As they started to look into this um, cell phone, they did an electronic database, a database query. And the, his number is, the provider is AT&T. So now they can start looking into his phone records. He was detained as part of another traffic stop in Washington State. And the body cam of that stop, he was the sole occupant driving that same white Hyundai at the same time it had a Pennsylvania plate, and that was in October. So sometime between October 14th and the and uh, when they found him on, on the campus, he had re-registered his vehicle, and it was on November 18th. The licensing um, motor vehicle in Washington, he registered his Elantra with Washington and later received a Washington plate and they had the plate. So now they got them, you can surveil them and they're going to look at them. Still, it doesn't mean he has done anything wrong yet. He's just, as they like to say in the media, at that point, a person of interest. And that's another reason why they probably didn't go to the media. You start calling them a person of interest, the media descends on them. They're outside taking pictures of everybody. You don't want to spook this guy. You're going to surveil him. You're not going to let him crawl in anybody's window. You don't want to spook them away until you have everything, all your ducks in a row here. Now, interesting thing. In some of the videos, there was no what appeared no front plate. Well, the state of Pennsylvania did not require a front plate to be displayed on the vehicle, but Washington and Idaho do. 
So when he was registered in Pennsylvania, apparently there was no front plate on the car. Now that he's re-registered the car, he does have one on the front and the back. But they know that he's still driving that car, and that's important. Now, after the murders, a license plate reader, so what a license plate reader is, they can be stationary or they can be on vehicles. And it's this piece of equipment that scans at, at street level. And it's pretty, it's pretty effective. It'll scan plates at an extremely high rate of speed, faster than any human being can type them in and wait for a computer response. It'll signify to an officer immediately, hey, there's blah, 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 a certain car with an expired registration. Or, um, you know, oh, there's a Chevy Tahoe with this thing that they just saw. The, the machine picks up and says, the, you know, the registered owner of that vehicle has a suspended driver's license. And it's, it's, it's an attempt to give you probable cause to make a motor vehicle stop. Well, this license plate reader picked them up in Loma, Colorado. And what they're starting doing now is what's called like offline searches. They're going back into databases throughout the country. Anybody's seen this. And what they're finding is different places along the route. He's on his way home to Pennsylvania with his father for the holidays, and he is being picked up on certain things. And some of you are probably sitting there going, Jesus, man, Big Brother's always watching. Well, sometimes they are. Yeah. And some of this technology is there. And you drive by it every day and you never know. You're completely unsuspecting. So the license plate reader picked him up in Colorado. It was then queried on December 15th by law enforcement in Hancock County, Indiana, where he was stopped by a sheriff's deputy. And that's the one that's all over the internet where he's having a conversation for tailgating. And you see him with his father in the car having a conversation. They know that he lives in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, which is just south of Route 80 in the Pocono Mountain area in Monroe County, uh, close to the New Jersey border. He is uh, in a gated community is where his parents live and. uh he was on his way with his father because his father flew out to drive him home or whatnot or drive home with him. It's a long trip. Now, who is this kid? Why is he out there? He is a PhD uh, graduate student and he is studying criminology at Washington State University. You might be like, who gives a shit, right? Well, listen to this. This is actually kind of important and this is going to come up later in his trial. He is studying criminology. Now, that's kind of when I, you know, you're an investigator and you hear that, okay, a criminology student and a grad student just got accused of a quadruple homicide. I want to know more about him because this is not your average everyday like shit bag that's living on the street that is trying to steal money or anything like that. There's a little bit more to it. And uh, what I found really interesting in the affidavit, they said they learned his past education on his undergrad included undergraduate degrees in psychology and cloud-based forensics. So he's studying the electronic part of this. He's, under, he's starting to study technological data. He wrote an essay in his graduate studies as well when he applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department. And he wrote in his essay that he had interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technical data in public safety operations. Okay, that's scary. He's, he's learning or trying to learn more about um, how the police operate. This episode of Under the Yellow Tape is brought to you by Sheepdog Java Coffee Company. The Sheepdog, the Sentinel, protecting the flock while it sleeps. The Sheepdogs in everyday life are your first responders. On the job 24-7, keeping watch while your family lives the American dream. The men and women of our armed forces, our nurses and firefighters, our paramedics, laboratory scientists, and of course, our police officers. These professionals work tirelessly day in and day out to keep your world safe, healthy, and whole. It's really not a job, it's a calling. We know training budgets are tight. 
Sheepdog Java will reinvest in your first responders, helping fund and create training courses so they can operate at the highest level in order to keep you, your family, and your community safe. So join the pack. Try Sheepdog Java today in support of your first responders and enjoy each cup with peace of mind. For more information, check us out at sheepdogjava.com. How some of this operates. And uh, I have this really bad feeling that we're going to find out more about this kid later. I don't really know. I could be wrong. Maybe this is his first foray into this field, but it sounds a little freaky. He, then he went and he tried to get uh, as part of his graduate study for his PhD. He wanted to interview inmates, people that have been convicted or incarcerated for crimes, and understand how their emotions and psychological traits influence their decision making on how they decided what crime, when they committed the crime, how they set up how they executed the crime, how they got away with it, or how they escaped from uh, from doing whatever. Which, you know, if you're a normal, I don't know, maybe if you're a PhD student with good intentions, that's a good research project. But when you're a murderer and you find this kind of shit out, it's, let's face it, folks, it's pretty damn scary that he's doing this. And that's what he's, his background is as far as a student. Now, the electronic component, They now that they have his phone number, they start to do... Uh, you'll hear the term pinging, pinging phones. What they're doing is they're basically looking for historical data from the phone. And they make application for some information. It's basically a geofence warrant is what they're doing. In the affidavit, they kind of water it down, I think, a little bit. I think they're talking just about cellular towers. So let's go into what the geofence warrant thing really is here. And we'll come back to where it affects him. So in a geofence warrant. Geo, geographical. That's what it is. Geographic, geography. Where? Where on earth? So say you pick four GPS coordinates along a street. Two on one side, two on the other. You're creating a square or a rectangle or whatever you want to make, whatever that area is. What you're going to do then is you're going to make applications to try to get the information from the electronic equipment, any electronic signal emitting equipment or receiving equipment that a cellular company might have access to within that area at a specific period of time on a specific date. The more you narrow it down, the easier it is to, to pile through uh, what data might be there. So they did this. They looked for November 13th between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. So they've narrowed down the time they believe the homicide and they go after it. Now, where does this information come from? And this might shock some of you. Now, this is not a secret. I'm not giving away trade secrets here. This is public information. Google. Google. There's a couple of companies that run the world right now. Google's one of them. Amazon's another. But in this particular area, Google. Google has something called the sensor vault. How this works is this. These frequencies, these open air frequencies, all these cell services, cell towers, all this, a lot of these frequencies are, are legally where they are and run the way they do to promote commerce. Okay? This is not made for law enforcement or for the intelligence community or anything like that. I've said this before. Most of what law enforcement uses to their advantage in any kind of technology is done because we have to MacGyver things. None of it's made for law enforcement. We have to use whatever's out there and make it work for us. Nobody comes out and says, hey, I'd really like to build a cool data collection vault just specifically for law enforcement. First of all, the ACLU would shit if they did that, and, and rightfully so. So you can't. So we use we, what we can, and we have to do it through permissions received from the court. 
So you have to make application through search warrants to get some of this information, actually to get it all. So Google has this sensor vault. What it does, it's a, as they, as they describe it, a trove of detailed location records involving at least hundreds of millions of devices worldwide, hundreds of millions. How does it work? Well, it started back in 2009 in the Android and Apple devices here. Location history is not something that just happens on your phone. Google actually prompts you to turn it on. How many of you have, well, first of all, let's start with the phone. We've talked about this before. The phone is like crack. You can't put it down. A phone is no longer a phone like an old flip phone or even the old block phones before that with the big, the big cumbersome, awkward keypads. These are all computers, powerful computers. And if you think I'm crazy, walk down any city street or walk on any college campus for sure and see how many kids or adults' faces are just buried in their phones. How many times have you seen the funny YouTube videos where people walk into light posts and walk off curbs and break their ankle or fall down? One, I saw a lady just go into a fountain, like a, like a water fountain in a, in a park. She, she went right over the wall because her face is buried in her damn phone. We're using smarter devices and becoming stupider as people. It's just the truth. It's cold, hard truth. We demand instant access and instant information. And it's right there in our pocket or in our hand. We do our email. How many of you go into the bathroom and sit down on the toilet and don't have your phone with you? I'll bet you more of you have the phone than don't. So every time you get on that phone and you need something, you're in your car, you put the phone in a little cradle in your car and you need maps. I need a, a map. Does my vehicle link up with my, my Google Maps? How many of you have Google Maps activated on your phone? Well, the second you do that, they know where you are. There's a bunch of other things. You know, you think when every time you download an app, you know, you need to play Solitaire or Candy Crush or whatever the games are now, whatever the popular one is, Wordle, right? All those things. You want to download all this shit off your Play Store or, or you know, your Apple, whatever it is for Apple. They're asking you this, that, and the other thing. Well, you're activated. So your, your phone now, not you, your phone is speaking to everything else out there that can receive it. Everything. So it's not by default. They prompt you to use it when you're setting up your apps and your services, your traffic alerts, Google Maps, and all those other things, anything, Google Photos, anything in there. Google runs so much. Google owns YouTube and things like that. So every time you go on any of these things, they know where you are and they know when you're doing it. They know when you're looking. They know how long you're looking. And you might think, well, that's, you know, oh man, the police can find that. Well, here's why they do it. Because you might stop and watch something on a social media page and it's an ad and you say, wow, that gas grill, that barbecue looks pretty cool. Let me check it out. And you hit the little play button and you watch the video while you're sitting on the shitter, right? Well, they know you're watching the grill. So in the next three days, you're going to be bombarded with ads about barbecues. Someday they're going to know you're actually on the shitter and you're going to get bombarded with toilet paper ads too. But right now it's just a grill. So you're looking at the grill ad because you queried it. You looked at it and they know it. They start to figure out what you like, what you do. It's called patterns of life and it is killing us, but you can't let it go. It's like air. You will choke without it. Take a phone away from your 14 or 15 year old kid and watch them melt. Have a, a mental meltdown because it's their life. It's everything. It's everything they have. Everything is right there. It's how they communicate. They suck at talking anymore, but they can, boy, they can text the shit out of a message to somebody, right? Well, this is where it comes from. So your location history uh, is on there and they can see a timeline of your activities and they can get recommendations based on where you've been, what you've shopped, what you've bought, what you've looked at. 
That's why it's allowed. That's why it's legal. You enabled your location service. You are carrying it around. It's like somebody planted a chip in your head, but it's far more easy because we didn't have to capture you and plant the chip in your head. You actually went to an AT&T store, a Verizon store somewhere and paid an exorbitant amount of money for some cool smartphone. You know, most of the uh, capabilities of it, you have no idea, but you have it. And that's it. Ever seen when a new phone comes out, especially iPhone, right? Apple comes out with a new iPhone. Look at the people lined up in an Apple store. Those are the 2% of the nerds of the world that actually know probably how to use most of the phone. The rest of us don't. We just buy whatever and we, we carry on. I need to look at email. I need to look at this or whatever. So that's why it's there. And then they have computers and they can make guesses. They have algorithms and they, and they say, which path are you going to go? Which way, you gonna, which store are you going to shop at? Which one are you going to do? Where do you buy food? Where do you do this? Where do you buy clothes? They want to see what your app activity is. They want to see what your patterns of life are. And by doing so, they can probably sell you more things. Okay. It's commerce. That's why it exists. Now, what do they, what do law enforcement do? Well, they know it exists. So does the government. So does all the intelligence communities. Google has a lot of info. They're one of the largest purchasers of data in the world and they have it. Now, how is law enforcement doing it? And this is very important that you understand this because this happened in this case and you're going to hear more about it as it goes on. You have to make application to the court. We have to get permission, which means you have to show probable cause as to why you need it and why you think it's relevant. Because basically we're going to identify people that have nothing to do with anything in a specific area. And as insignificant as that may sound, it's an invasion of your privacy, unless there's a reason for the authorities to have it. So what they do is they go and they get a warrant and it's called a geofence warrant. And what they're looking for is anything in the specific area that we have defined. And we told the court, look, this area is important. We have a quadruple murder. We have this, that, and the other thing. And we want to know what electronic devices were here. And you might say, okay, well, what if I, uh, what if I had turned my phone off? Okay. Is your phone really ever off? Is there a battery in it? Is it emitting any signal? I'm going to ask you that. Do you even know? If you turn it off and you turn the battery out, is it dead? If you turn it off and the battery is still on, how does the phone know what time it is? How does the phone know how to do certain things? So you're looking, you're probably looking at your phone right now going, holy shit. Well, your phone's a very powerful tool. So when they make the request, Google will get back to them and they will say, okay, in that particular area, these were the electronic devices that were active that we have, that we have. There may be others, but this is what we have. What they get, what the police get is a number. It's a, an anonymous number and there's, there's no name attached to it. It's just an identifier. And then what they can do is say, all right, well, we know this number is a Verizon phone. We know this number is a T-Mobile phone and this one here is an AT&T phone or whatever. And they can figure out the carriers and this and that. So they narrow it down even more. So in this particular case, we know he has an AT&T provider. So in their area, they find a device and say, okay, we need to know who the ownership is. Now that is a second application of a warrant. This is another request. Now we're going further into the invasion of privacy, but we need to show why it's legally valid. So now they'll make application to AT&T and saying, look, this electronic ID number or this ESN number, equipment serial number, uh, SIM cards and this and that, we need to know who the registered owner is. And here's a court order you have to tell us. And they'll give you, well, this came back to Brian Koberger of Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. And that's how they, they do that. Now, when they did that on his, um, so now they have a car, this is multi-layered and this is why it's so good. The old fashioned police, we have a car on, on independent cameras. These are not police. This is not the government controlled cameras. These are individual store cameras, 
personal cameras, video cameras in different places, body cams from police stops and this and that. So the validity of it, the objectivity of it and the, and the authenticity of it is real. And it's good because it's coming from a wide array of places. So it makes it more credible. Now we go into the phone. Now we start tracking his phone. So they got historical data between November 12th and November 14th. They have his phone utilizing cellular towers, resources in close proximity to the King Road residence. Now this is not, this doesn't put him right in the house, but it puts him in the area. And again, this is only an affidavit. What they're going to do is at different times, find him there. What's interesting is the hour, like, uh, I forget when it was. I have to look here. The, 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 the exact time when the murder occurred, he shut his phone off. So they have a record of him right in the area near the house in a cell tower that would have serviced that house, would have provided cell service to the house where the murders occurred, and his phone goes dead. Think of him going back to his cloud-based data technology degree. There's a lot of criminals out there, folks, that don't know how to do this, but he did. He shut his phone off. It's going to hurt him in the end because his phone told him everything else, except right then and there at the time of the dirty deed, his phone goes dead. If his phone was dead for three weeks, it would have helped him. This is going to hurt him, but he's, you don't know what you don't know sometimes. He was not, he thought he was smart, but he wasn't as smart. The fact that he turned it off is going to be interesting. Later on, they applied another one for historical records between November 12th and November 14th for that phone, and they gave him some other parameters of times they're looking to, and they got, they got the records from AT&T. And the phone is subscribed to Brian Koberger, or Obiteville, Pennsylvania, and it has been open since June of 22. So he's had the phone. Now we're establishing a timeline. Look, you can't say that phone wasn't mine. No, it was. We know when you got the phone. It was taken out in your name. You've had it, and we've been. now we're following it. Another thing the Bureau brings into play is this cellular, cellular analysis survey team, CAST. It's really something that ramps up for um, like Amber Alerts, and it's a phenomenal tool. And the Bureau members that are in charge of using this or, or tasked with doing it do a really fantastic job. And they were able to start to look at his movement and estimate locations for that phone from November 12th through the 13th. Now, he was using, using cellular towers, meaning he was in an area where his phone was communicating with a cell tower that provides covers to this area between his residence at the college where he lived and the King Road residence where the murder took place. The interesting thing is it marries up with the movement of the Hyundai Elantra, which was found on video. So now we have two sources independent of one another that are starting to show his movements. 247, the phone stops stops working. The night of the murder, 247, it, it stops. He goes down, which is consistent with either the phone being in the area without cellular coverage, which we know it has cellular coverage, or the phone being turned off or put in airplane mode or something like that. Now, the phone does not report to the network again until 448 after the murder. So when he drives away, he turns his power, he powers it back up. And, and they know between the times and where he is during those times. So between 4.50 a.m. and 5.26, he uses cellular towers consistent with him traveling the road, heading back towards home. For, uh, 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 I won't dive into it too hard, but one of the interesting things is that in the time frame before the murder, again, using his phone record, and I'm going to read it right out of the affidavit, it says the records for this phone, his phone, show that phone utilizing cellular resources that provide coverage to the area of 1112 King Road, which is where the murders took place, on at least 12 occasions prior to the date of the murder. All of these occasions, except for one, occurred in the late evening and early morning hours. Now, this is not definitive, but that is consistent with 
Koberger doing recon. That also may be him looking for cameras on the residence. Maybe that house didn't have, have any cameras. There, there's nothing in the affidavit about cameras on the house, but there's neighbor's cameras and there's other places that have cameras. So maybe there was none. And maybe he was over there doing a recon. Who's coming? Who's going? Who's in the house? Who lives here? Who's just visits? And, and there's still the million dollar question of, does he have any relationship to any of these people? And that I don't know the answer to, but I can tell you they probably do. And at one point, on August 21st, and see how far back, so the murders are in November. Dating back to August, he is basically over near that house. And in one area on August 21st, he's there from 10.30 to 11.30. So he's over there for an hour. Is he in the house? Does he know anybody there? I don't know. Or is he sitting outside just looking at him? It's interesting. So on August 21st, again, from 10.30 to 11.30-ish, and at 11.37, two minutes later, he stopped by a county sheriff, the one mentioned above. So we know, again, why is this important? Okay, we have the cellular tower in the area of the murder house months before. So he could be doing recon. I don't know. He could be visiting someone. But on that same day, we have a sheriff deputy stop him for whatever reason. And it's him because the body cam footage exists. So it's not like he said, that wasn't me. I loaned my car. I loaned my phone to somebody else. No, it's you. You're kind of getting yourself screwed six ways from Sunday here. They got him moving around at other stores, a coffee shop that he frequented, an Albertson's grocery store. The reason why they did this was they said, this phone is on his in his possession. It's on his person. And we can back it up with independent objective video surveillance or security video footage from multiple different places that have nothing to do with the investigation. So they're, they're doing a really phenomenal job of laying out his path of travel. And again, at the grocery store. So now <clears throat> we have, go back to the DNA. So they laid out the car. This is very important. They laid out the car, right? It's great. I mean, really good work. Two registrations, one in Pennsylvania, re-registered in, in, in Washington. Driving around that area before the event, after the event, in the area of the, of the homicide. Got them. Dead to rights. Your car is there. You're, you're there. Your phone is there. We have you electronically, we have you visually in a car, and we have you stopped and we have a body cam footage that we didn't unsuspect and you had no idea who you really were. So there's a lot of different ways they're going to say, you're here, buddy. You're here. Don't say you're not because we got you. We got you here in this area. And then we got the car leaving. They hit it on a plate reader in, in Colorado. They get it in Indiana, multiple traffic stops in Indiana where he gives some bullshit story to a sheriff's deputy. And then they got in Pennsylvania where he gets home. Him and his father get back to Eastern Pennsylvania and he's at home. And this is where the next part of the technology comes into play. And it's fantastic. So at this point, we know we have a single source DNA source, male, on the scene, not just anywhere, not on the toilet handle or anything like that, on the button of the sheath of the knife we believe was used to kill these people. V probative value is awesome valuable, compelling, powerful piece of evidence, right? How do we how do we link it to him? He has no criminal history. We have no record at this point of DNA. In other words, he's not in CODIS, which I explained in the last episode, the combined DNA index system. It's not in there. So how do we get it? Well, we could arrest him. Do we have enough or do we need more? So if we arrest him, we can get it, but we don't really have enough to arrest him. So what do we do? This is where the old fashioned police work came into play. And, and melded together with the technology. So what did they do? This is awesome. They went to Pennsylvania. They called the Pennsylvania authorities. Pennsylvania State Police was up there and everybody. And they said, look, who does he live with? They found out he was an only child. He lives with his parents when he's home. They live in this area. 
There's nobody else there. How do we match anything up? So they went and got trash. They put out trash. And I guess in the middle of the night, where they got a court order, however it works in Pennsylvania, they snatched his garbage. And they sent some of it back to the Idaho lab and they found DNA, male DNA. They were able to determine male DNA. And they said, how do we know whose this is? And this is where I'm not sure. They didn't really say in there that they went to a, a familial genealogy route. They may have to identify it as his father, Michael Koberger. But now this is where the CSI shit happens. This is where that kind of cool TV thing that, that ropes people in. What they did was they had a DNA profile obtained from the trash and the DNA profile obtained from the sheath. They identified a male just the male, as not being excluded as the biological father of the suspect profile. Now, what that means is it's him or his dad. You might say, oh my God, is his dad involved? Well, I'm not saying that. What I am saying though is there's what we talked about in the last episode was YSTR. So YSTR DNA uh, technology, the Y chromosome is passed from father to son. Patrilineal DNA, it is direct father to son DNA linkage. So what we have is either his dad or his son. And what we're going to find out later is it's probably him directly. But we can't exclude the father and they have, to, they have to admit that in the affidavit, right? To be objective and fair. But what they say is at least 99.9998% of the male population of the world would be expected to be excluded from the possibility of being the suspect's biological father. So in other words, it's him or him, right? Well, they can find out where dad was. We'll do the same thing with his phone. Junior's out there. We already know that. He's been driving around for months. We got him with his phone. We got him on video. We got everything else. So now we have a DNA sample where we have enough belief that, look, it's it's coming from this lineage. This is how all the uh, you know family DNA companies do it. It's not exact, but now what's going to happen is they execute the search warrant. Once they get it signed here by the judge on the 29th, they go get him. The second thing they, the second they had him, I guarantee they had a swab in his mouth and they're taking what's called a buckle swab. Now it's his DNA. Now we have his control. We know him. And what they'll do now is they will compare the control they take at the time of the arrest to the exact DNA profile found on the sheath of the knife. And it's highly likely it's going to be him and nobody else. They will give you a statistical breakdown of probability of it being him and somebody else. And it's going to be like one in like seven sextillion. These numbers I never even heard of until I started reading DNA reports. Um, and it's going to be Brian Koberger. That's where they're at um, with that. Now, as far as the time, real quick on the time, people say, why does it take so long? This was incredibly fast in the world of, of <laughs> criminal investigative work. And part of it is because, you know, a DNA result in a criminal lab, if things are not fast-tracked and expedited, it's like a year in some places, maybe more, eight months, year, 15 months, whatever. You don't see this. This was in seven weeks. I cannot say enough for the people that have been involved in this. And I don't even know who they all are yet. Bravo. I mean, really. Congratulations. You guys did a, a hell of a job in a short period of time putting this together and doing a multi-layered approach that is is closing this door on him it is it is hemming him in and earlier in the in this podcast i said if there's a trial and i mean that if there's a trial he may look for a plea to save his life because idaho has the death penalty 
and people are just pissed enough to give it to him. He may look to try to save his life and spend the rest of his life in jail and he'll confess to everything. Who knows? Who knows what happens? Now, there's another side to this. And we're going to follow up with another episode as we go on because the investigation report, the rest of the geofence warrant information, I didn't even touch on routers uh, and other cell phones, communications, how your electronics communicate with other things. They're going to come through with another like ton of information electronically shutting this door on him another video. What you see in an arrest warrant is just enough to arrest him. What they really wanted was the swabbing from his mouth. They wanted his DNA and to make sure that he's in pocket and he can't kill anybody else. And they accomplished that. So that well done. So you're going to see this unfold and a ton of other information is going to come out as this thing unfolds. And the way they did this so far, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what it is because it seems like they did a really fantastic and incredibly professional job. So to all the people out there that said this took a long time, maybe there was missteps. No, no, you got it wrong because people that said that watch too much television and they think shit happens by the first commercial break, folks. It doesn't work that way. This was really fast and really good. And you all, whether you're in Idaho or not, should look at these people and applaud because this was really kind of kind of done quickly. And where they've got so far is pretty good. Now there's attorneys out there. I've heard defense attorneys say, well, this is a, an overzealous police department that was just in a hurry to lock somebody up and everything's circumstantial and blah, 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 blah. It's not, it's not, I mean, there's a lot of circumstantial, but it's, I'm going to tell you right now that if that DNA comes back, him and nobody else, party over, mic drop, it's over. And he's going to be looking to make a plea or they're going to try to attack the way something was done and try to get some kind of bullshit ruling. But, uh, we, we will revisit this again, and we will do some more follow-ups as far as what they're doing, and we'll talk about how they did it and why that, that information that they got so early on was so valuable and what they're going to load on him coming up after. You haven't seen anything yet. This, this was great, but they're going to pile it on now. And uh, they got him, and he wasn't too bright. I want to thank you guys for listening. And I hope you follow up with us again when we when we come back and we and we do the next phase of this one. I think it's going to be very interesting. Thanks, uh, thanks for listening. Take care. We'll talk soon.